Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, America. Welcome to the program. This is a Just Cause Coast to Coast where we bring you education, awareness, and information about judicial injustice. I'm Sam Thurman along with Cliff Stewart and Ethel Lopez. How you guys doing? doing Great, good? thank you. All right. For our listeners, you can call in if you have questions you'd like to contribute to the program. Our phone number is 347-838-8976. 347-838-8976. Just want to remind you that we are not attorneys and a Just Cause Coast to Coast does not provide legal advice. Please contact your personal legal advisor for your legal needs, and also the opinions expressed by callers and guests do not necessarily reflect that of a just cause or a just cause coast to coast. But as always, thank you for tuning in and choosing to spend time with us this evening. All right, we have a new special guest host joining us tonight. Lamont Banks is going to be joining us and providing commentary on judicial injustice, and uh, he's going to be joining us each week now. And I think he's going to actually he's going to bring some uh, extra dyna- uh, dynamics, yeah, dynamics and dimension to the program. How you doing, Mike? Doing pretty good. Good to be here. All right. So tell us a little bit about uh, your background. I know you know those who have been following the program, uh, they know that you have been a guest on the program before, and uh, also, but I think you bring something very special to the to the uh, program. Tell us about that. Uh, well, I. Uh was one of uh, many, as, as I followed the show, uh, many people that have been wrongfully convicted. And uh, uh, actually, in my particular case, I uh, did six and a half to seven years uh, for a crime that I did not commit. And uh, so I'm in a situation where I, I counted a privilege to be a part of the organization uh, and to fight for the rights of others uh, and those that have suffered at the hand of this system that we call justice. Yeah, and, and we appreciate you uh, coming on board uh, for the program, but then also, you know, uh, as far as your involvement with A Just Cause. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I'm fortunate to uh, have the opportunity to work with a dynamic group of people uh, that are mo- motivated and passionate about what this thing uh, that uh, we call fighting for justice is. And I think uh, uh, it, it drives me. Uh, it's with me every day uh, as a result of what I suffered and, and the injustices that I suffered and the, the things we went through. Uh, as a result of being of that false incarceration. So uh, I'm very grateful and humbled uh, to be among uh, such good people and, and to be able to at least contribute in any way that I can uh, to fight for justice for others and, and, and to spend my life doing that. Well, I just uh, an official welcome to the team. Welcome. I appreciate dude. that. Awesome. All right. Thank you. All right. So uh, let's, let's, uh, this evening's program, I think we've got a really, a really, really good program lined up. Uh, We're going to talk about the struggles of uh, proving your innocence. And later in the program, and our listeners are going to like this, uh, we have a special guest that's going to join us, and that's going to be Brian Banks. And anyone that's uh, uh, sports into sports and into uh, football, uh, Brian is the young man that was wrongly convicted and incarcerated uh, and uh, had, you know, high hopes for playing uh, professional football. Mm -hmm. Uh, and those hopes got dashed because of a wrongful conviction. He ended up coming out and uh, has had some opportunities in the NFL. And uh, so we're going to allow him to share his story. Mm-hmm. So we're going to—that's that's a special thing that we're going to have there. Also joining us will be Justin Brooks. And Mr. Brooks uh, started the California 
Innocence Project. So he's going to talk a little bit about that. And the California Innocence Project actually uh, was involved in the Brian Banks uh, case. So we're looking forward to that as well. Now, you know, if you follow the, the program um, every week, you know that one of the things we talk about is the IRP6 case. And the IRP6 are Gary Walker, David Banks, uh, Dave Zerpolo, Kendrick Barnes, Clinton Stewart, and Demetrius Harper. And this is a case of a wrongful conviction where uh, you have six IT professionals who uh, started a business, got in debt, the debt was criminalized, uh, the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office, Assistant U.S. Attorney Matthew Kirsch, uh, called two grand juries to get an indictment, and then there was a trial that ensued uh, that you know, uh, federal judge Christine Arguello just did everything within her power to, to, to ensure that, that the proceedings of that, of that trial uh, was, was biased against the guys. Absolutely. As a result, you ended up with uh, several points that were under appeal. Uh, the appeal were uh, Fifth Amendment violation, speedy trial violation, mm -hmm. and then also uh, expert witnesses that were not allowed to testify. Now, and, and in the midst of, of all of that, uh, you had a, in the Fifth Amendment violation, you had a sidebar that occurred where Judge Arguello forced the guys to take the stand. Now, you have over 200 pages Absolutely. of transcript that's missing uh, in this case. And, uh, and the appellate court, and we talked about this over the last couple of shows, where the appellate court came back with a decision where they denied the appeal for, for the IRP-6. How can you deny an appeal when there is a transcript missing? Impossible. That's right. Impossible. Even, uh, you know, Judge Sarakin, who's been looking at the case, who's written several times on it, has said that, you know, what else is there for the appellate court to do except overthrow, I mean, uh, overturn, mm -hmm. throw out, or remand back to the, to the court for retrial? There's nothing else you can do with, with missing transcript. There is no way to make a decision without the record available it just well, it, i'm telling you it's like reading a book and you got chapters missing how is that that's right how do you get the entire story that's right that's ridiculous and, and and there is case law within the 10th circuit court of appeals uh united states versus haber that says just that mm -hmm. that in the absence of uh of transcript that they can't make a decision, That's and that right. is considered reversible error. And when there is reversible error, there is absolutely no way you can make a ruling on it. In this case, they, they stepped all around it, yeah. sidestepped it, did everything within their power to, to not address this head on, and as we refer to it as the, you know, the big white elephant sitting in the corner of the room. Exactly. How can you ignore the fact that there are over 200 pages of trend? And then when the, when the judge admits to it, in, uh, in open court, mm -hmm. first in the district court case uh, with IRP-6, where she addresses uh, uh, court reporter Darlene Martinez, and she asks, how many pages are we talking about missing? Uh, and, and she says, uh, 200. That's when yeah. uh, I believe Clint Stewart and, and Gary Walker were asking about it. And she says, 200. Now, we as a just cause filed a lawsuit uh, to, to get those 200 pages of transcript, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and even the judge in that civil lawsuit, mm -hmm. Judge R. Brooke Jackson, he stated that the judge said that there is something missing okay. and that there is no confusion that something is missing. Absolutely. Well, if everyone is saying something is missing and you're acknowledging that, right. 
Why are there six men sitting in prison? Absolutely. Well, and, if, well if you, uh, sorry. Oh, uh, go ahead. That's well, right. If you take, if you take, uh, people are, are referencing 200 pages, 200 pages. Mm-hmm. The fact of the matter is, if there's one page missing of the proceedings, absolutely, it is automatically an o- an overthrown case, an o- not overthrown, an overturned case, mm-hmm. because the bottom line is there, there's, if there's a possibility, right? If there's a possibility that something is in that transcript that the, 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 the position of appellate judges is to look for trial error. Mm-hmm. Where did error occur during the course of the trial? Right. So if there's a page missing, you have to overturn it for yeah. one reason. There's a possibility exactly. that, that trial error occurred in, 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 the, uh, in the trial just on one page, That's right. let exactly. alone over 200. And even, even when true. they try to come back with the argument, well, you know, if you have these pages missing, you have to make sure, you know, because some people say, well, you got to make sure there's something viable in there that could be used, uh, you know, to overturn. Well, there's nothing more viable than a, a Fifth Amendment. We're talking about a constitutional violation. And, You're and talking I, about the rights of six men, exactly. their constitutional rights violated. That is within that, that 200 pages of transcript somewhere. Exactly. Now, if, if, if that was not, like you said, Lamont, if there was one page missing mm-hmm. and the possibility that the defendants can say, hey, the, the prosecutor told me he was going to shoot me in the head if I didn't get on the mm-hmm, stand, mm-hmm. and the prosecutor says, there's no way I told you that, mm-hmm. then the transcript that's missing may prove it. Right. Then... That is grounds for, hey, we got to do something with this. We got to overturn it. We have to make you retry. But you're talking about 200 pages, yeah. a right. constitutional violation Absolutely. by the judge. Yes. And then you say, well, that holds, that holds no, uh, that, that's no reversible error. But that then, is and, and the same thing, uh, Cliff and, and Mike, what you're saying, the, the, the judge has already admitted that's, that, that she said something. Exactly. The, the defendants have admitted to what it was that she said. So why aren't you concerned about what it is that is missing? I mean, you're talking about something viable. You won't know whether it's viable or not if it's not there. Well, the bizarre part about that is is that you have people in cases where somebody who is guilty of murder right. is blatantly guilty mm-hmm. but will walk on a technicality. Absolutely. So if that, if that be the case and they can walk on a technicality, mm-hmm. what does that tell you? Yeah. One page, two page, three That's page. All right, for our listeners, you know that that is our breaking news thing, and uh, it goes right along what we're talking about in the IRP6 case. And one of the things that we just came out with today is uh, a press release, and an attorney, the appellate attorney, Gwendolyn Solomon, discovered that, and I think you saw it as well, Evel. Absolutely. That uh, in the uh, in the appellate uh, court opinion. Right that there is a big chunk of this thing that is cut and paste. Yes, it is. And, you know, it, and, and the part where they're talking about speedy trial, there is a case that occurred in, in the Tenth, uh, Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, Larson, United States versus uh, mm-hmm. Paul Larson. Mm-hmm. And in that case, there was a speedy trial violation, and, uh, and that was in 2010. Mm-hmm. All of the exact same verbiage in that decision yes. is in the IRP6 decision. That's yes. right. Now, uh, now, this is almost, we, we were discussing earlier as to, you know, breaking news and mm-hmm. things that make you go, hmm, right. hmm, here's the thing that make you go, hmm. <laughs> now, how can the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals, the same writing judge, okay. Judge Jerome Holmes, right. in 2010 have a speedy trial opinion 
and says that out of the four factors that are required to to say that yeah that this person's speedy trial uh, act uh, mm-hmm. was violated mm-hmm. in that case he said only one of those factors did that that Larson satisfied and but in that case they reversed it that's right remanded it back to the uh, district court yeah and basically granted the guy his appeal exactly in the IRP six case. There are, what, 40, I think 46 or 48 days mm-hmm. that are unaccounted for in the calculations of the speedy trial situation for the IRP-6. Right. An egregious violation of the speedy trial. Now, it's, it's 70 days, but when you take those 48 mm-hmm. days mm-hmm. and do all the calculations with all the other days over, over a couple-year period, that, that, uh, the speedy trial violation definitely occurred. Yep, yep. In the case of the IRP-6, the appeal was denied. Yeah. And the, and, and the same thing, they're saying that the IRP-6 case, as far as uh, speedy trial violation, only one factor uh, uh, was satisfied. The other three, they're saying, well, it weighed against them. They did the same thing in the Larson case. So how can you in the Larson case say, okay, uh, speedy trial was violated. Mm-hmm. In the IRP-6 case, you say it's not. Exactly. I mean, it's the exact same it's not like oh it's kind of it's close the exact same case law the exact same argument written by the exact judge how do you say basically this judge is is contradicting himself himself and and basically going against what he decided it's like you take one piece of case law and says yes this is grounds for reversal Mm -hmm. And then you take that same thing that you wrote, yeah. that opinion that you wrote, and say, no, we're in, not, not going to use it. And mm-hmm. this little cut-and-pasted, cropped-out exactly. piece that shows – I mean, how, how, are you, how do you have an appellate judge that's more prejudicial than that? At least he could have got somebody else's case law and refuted that. But you refute yourself and then say that you're upholding justice? Those are the type of things that that is the reason that instead of us just accepting what mm-hmm, was said mm-hmm. in the in the uh, in the opinion from the appellate judges that you have to dig into it because it's like, where does the injustice stop? But that's that's why, you know, we have to cry out for an investigation of the entire Tenth Circuit. We have to. They have to be investigated. You know, I'm, I'm telling you from the bottom to the top, because you've got the appellate judges that are doing this crap. Give me a break. Then, right. then the circuit judge feels like she can get away with anything. Right. The, the, the appellate, dis- yeah, the district the, judge, yeah. The district yeah, the district judge, judge, the appellate judges, the court reporters, the every court one of them. Everybody is. I think we just lost. I think we just lost Cliff. But Cliff, I think check check your connection there. But what Cliff is saying yeah. is that. Uh, all of the all of the people uh, uh, throughout the entire court, yeah, uh, is I mean they need to be looked at. It, really, yeah. everybody from the from the top down. You got you got clerks of the court signing off for judges. You got the court reporter Darlene Martinez who uh, refused to record what Judge Arguello said. Then you have Judge Arguello who um, from from her very own own admitted. I mean, you have uh, in Judge Jackson's order, he makes the statement. He's like he's like, look, you know, uh, Arguello already admitted that, you know, that that they're missing. So so there's there's no need to argue whether the transcript is missing or not, because Judge Arguello is on the record with Darlene Martinez, the court reporter, saying over 200 pages are missing. Now, yeah. how do you not, as an appellate judge, 
attack that part. And 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 not only that, Cliff. And and looking at this thing where we we've got Darlene Martinez. She's never come out and said what she has done with this transcript. Nobody has even asked her this question. And that's what I want to know. Why not? And then you've got this clerk up here in in, in Denver, Colorado, that's signing off on this transcript. Why can't somebody tell me why he's not why he's signing off on on this uh, on on, on these opinions? Why is he signing off on them? That's right. They're all crooked. They're all, uh, you know, they're all a part of the same sore. So they're, they're all the same just bowl of pus. And, and, and you know what? When you've got the judicial assistant telling you, she told me, okay, that in the case of a bond, anything to do with a bond has to be seen by the appellate judges and has to be signed off by them. I cannot see a signature from an appellate judge on this thing. Where is it? That's right. That's right. What I mean, is going on? There, there are a lot of there are a lot of issues that need to be addressed in this, and so and and this isn't the end. I mean, we're we're going to be talking about this, and 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 we're like Cliff was saying, and like you were saying, after we're pushing for uh, investigation, we're we're uh, reaching out to everybody that we can reach out to, and uh, and that being said, uh, what what are we asking folks to do as far as uh, even with Attorney General Eric? Holder? Absolutely, we need you all to call Attorney General Eric Holder's office two zero two five one four two zero zero three and two zero zero five and ask him to investigate where this missing uh, over two hundred pages of trial transcript is. We also want you to ask him to investigate the Tenth Circuit. That's a bunch, uh, a whole big barrel of snakes all twisted and tied up that somebody needs to get in there and straighten that crap out. <laughs> Breathe. <laughs> That's right. Uh, it, 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 it'll make you lose your breath because of the fact this, this is so messed up that, you know, you, you got to express the fact that, you know, somebody has to do something. That's right. And with the over 200 pages of transcript, we got that uh, – a petition out there on change.org, and we ask our listeners to go to change.org, do a search on IRP6, and sign the petition. And, and we ask that you, not just you sign it, but we ask that you call friends and family and anyone that you know and ask them to sign that petition. And then also, uh, for additional information on the IRP6, uh, anyone that looks at this whole case, yes. you know, they say, you know, this is, is really twisted and this is messed up. Uh, and and so everybody you, can see it, but them in that, the tenth circuit. Or they don't. Uh, that, they don't. Oh, exactly. They see it. They see it. They Actually, when well, you it. know that was a, a, a rhetorical statement, <laughs> right there. I mean, you know. But go to free the irp six dot org, and then Cliff. I mean, there's the other other element real quick about the uh, uh, the jury and, right. and their involvement in the situation. And what what are we asking there? Yeah, we know that. U.S. jurors, you know, if you're listening in, we know that during this case, you saw these things happen uh, with Judge Arguello, with uh, with the court reporter, with, you know, the Fifth Amendment violation, all these things that transpired. And you got to have questions. So you have questions. We have some answers. Some of it, you know, is too bizarre to have any real answer. But if you do have questions that we can't answer them for you, reach out to us. You can reach us at 855-529-4252. Again, that's 855 855- Five two nine four two five two, or send us an email at contact at a dash justcalls.com and we'll give you any information that we have. And you know, uh, and and one of the things we want to mention, I'll mention again uh, later in the program. But you know, what a just cause does, uh, you can find out more about our organization at www.a-justcause.com. Again, www.a-justcause.com. We have the best volunteers uh, that you can ask for yeah. as far as helping to push. Uh, for 
uh, bringing awareness about judicial injustice and pushing for judicial reform. Uh, however, you know, we do ask that uh, our listening audience, you know, go to our website. Go to contact at uh, a-justcause.com. Send us an email. You can also go to the click the donate button on the page. We're working on our 501c3. But even in the meantime, I mean, you know, the, the, uh, the, we are doing things, and Ethel, you share it quite often, that it's not just about the IRP6. Right. I mean, this is a serious, serious, egregious injustice. Yeah. But if you go and look at our website and you follow us, you'll know that we talk a lot about injustice across the board. That's right. And so uh, we would ask that you would help in the cause. Uh, go to our website and click on the donate button. And uh, we can definitely uh, put that to great use. We're going to take a great, quick break, and then we're going to come back and talk about a couple of things that's uh, in, the, in the news right now. Uh, this is a Just Cause Coast to Coast, where we bring you education, awareness, and information about judicial injustice. I'm Sam Thurman, Cliff Stewart, Ethel Lopez, and Lamont Banks. We'll be right back in just a moment. The United States houses more human beings in prisons than any other country in the world. This is true whether you're counting total numbers or in relation to population size. This wasn't always the case. The number of prisoners in the U.S. began to rise dramatically in the 1970s. So what changed in America compared to other countries? While there are several competing theories, a look at the data reveals that a significant part of the prison growth in the last 40 years has been driven by the war on drugs. Here's the data. By 1980, there were over 315,000 prisoners in state and federal facilities. 57% were violent offenders. 30% were property violators, such as thieves or those convicted of fraud. 5.5% of inmates were in for public order and other miscellaneous offenses. And the remaining 7.5% were nonviolent drug law violators. Ten years later, the drug war had grown, and the total American prison population had more than doubled to over 740,000 inmates. The proportion of offenders in each type of crime had also changed dramatically. The most growth occurred in the nonviolent drug offender population, which grew to a significant 24%. And this last statistic actually understates the influence of the drug war on prison populations. Many studies have shown that drug prohibition causes violent crime by leading to the formation of gangs and cartels. And thus it is safe to say that the number of violent criminals under prohibition is higher than it would otherwise be. From 1990 to 2000, the drug-driven population growth continued. By 2000, the total prison population had almost doubled again to over 1.3 million inmates. And by 2010, the prison population was up to 1.6 million people. The growth has started to settle and even decline in recent years, but the proportions of offenses are retaining their post-1990 levels. America's unique methods of enforcing drug prohibition seem to parallel its unique prison population. And one has to ask, is our country really better off with so many nonviolent drug offenders behind bars? Are drug users likely to be cured from addiction by being locked up? Has locking up dealers and users lessened the demand for drugs? Certainly, the effects on overall usage could not be called a success. And yet we spend billions every year on this war and lock up hundreds of thousands. Surely there must be a less 
costly approach to addressing drug use in America. expressed by guests and callers on A Just Cause Coast to Coast do not necessarily reflect those of A Just Cause or A Just Cause Coast to Coast. Just Cause, Coast to Coast, where we bring you education, awareness, and information about judicial injustice. Our phone number this evening, 347-838-8976, 347-838-8976. I'm Sam Thurman, along with Ethel Lopez, Cliff Stewart, and, and Lamont Banks. And uh, just want to also point out to folks that you can go out to AJCRadio.com, again, AJCRadio.com, to listen to archives of the program and uh, find out a little bit more about AJC Radio. Uh, for uh, other programming, on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. Eastern Time, you can catch us on Progressive Radio Network, and you can get there by going to prn.fm, and you can also get 24 by 7 programming at live365.com. Like us on, on Facebook, ah, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. So uh, what's in the news? I know we, uh, we're pulling a, a current uh, event here. And uh, which, which article are, are we looking at here? Um, there's one with uh, Brooklyn District Attorney uh, Kenneth Thompson, who takes on wrongful conviction. It says prosecutors gain a national reputation for aggressive review of claims. And uh, Kenneth Thompson, uh, Brooklyn D- uh, District Attorney, on a promise that if elected, he would review more cases involving a police detective accused of coercing false confessions. Cliff, guess who that uh, uh, oh, detective is? Oh, we know is. who it is. We know. We, y'all already know. His, y'all name, know his name precedes him. His name, remi- his name rhymes with dirty, no good crook. <laughs> <laughs> dirty, no good crook, oh, Scarcella. That's Scarcella. what his name uh, rhymes with. He's the one. He's the one. He said when he took office in January, he quickly turned his attention to revamping what's known as the Conviction, uh, conviction Review Unit, which was started by Charles Hayne, who was his pre- predecessor. He's 48 years old. And he also said that uh, the unit's uh, prosecutors weren't assigned investigators and weren't given direction about how to review dozens of wrongful convictions claims. And he thought that was just crazy. He overhauled the unit assigning 10 prosecutors, three investigators, and other staff members at a cost of $1.1 million a year. And he says, overseen by a Harvard Law School professor, an independent uh, review panel that makes recommendations to Mr. Thompson on each completed investigation. And, you know, it says that... uh they, they've had over 100 cases being reviewed, yes. and 70 of those cases was Detective Scarcella. Wow. That's I mean, that's crazy. That is yeah. absolutely crazy. Oh, and they've already, they've already overturned, what it says, seven murder convictions overturned, mm-hmm. or, and, uh, and over more than 100 others reviewed. Mm-hmm. And the, the crazy thing is that uh, our buddy, 
crazy <laughs> Mr. Scarcella is still saying he didn't do anything wrong. It's like they already they already overturned seven of your murder convictions out of the 70 that you have. And and that's just start. That's not like okay, they finished all of the all hundred of these reviews. No, they're just getting started. They're just getting started. And they're already seeing that well, seven of the people you convicted are innocent. That's how does ridiculous. one detective Exactly. How do you have seven convictions that were overturned? And, and you say, I didn't do anything wrong. And Thompson's only been in office now seven months. Yeah. That's ridiculous. And so, yes. you know, that's, I mean, and, and they, they said that uh, Thompson is actually quoted as saying that for the most part, if there's a claim of wrongful conviction mm-hmm. and it occurred in, in Brooklyn, we're going to take a look at it. Well, you I know mean, what? Go, I, I, go ahead, Mike. And I think it's a good idea that the uh, if the federal government can – uh, somehow send mandates down to all district attorney offices mm-hmm. that have independent people set up right. uh, that holds people accountable. That's Without it. accountability being on the, on the agenda, people will continue to do what they do. That's when right. you have That's an independent true. group set up that in every, you know, every place in the United States where there's a district attorney's office, mm-hmm. you have accountability set. You have an independent review of people that will review cases, yeah. review actions of prosecutors, then you can get somewhere. This guy overturned 10, is it 10 cases he overturned? Well, and that's, that's uh, in just a short period of time that and he's been, are, been in office. And those are murder cases. Yeah. 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 Murder cases. And, and, you know, as you're talking about that, what comes to mind is Howell Waltz yeah. and the ombudsmannow.com. And so, uh, you know, that's another uh, uh, advocacy group and yeah. an, an advocate for judicial reform that we align with, we support, he supports us. Again, that's Howell Waltz. And if you were to go out to Waltz, I should say, W-O-L-T-Z, mm-hmm. and go out to ombudsmannow.com, and it's set up to do exactly what you're talking about, Lamont, uh, that we need to hold people accountable, and it needs to be independent Absolutely. of any, right. uh, anything else that's going on within those prosecutors' offices. Absolutely. And, then, and then we'll see some change. I mean, people and, will start getting their act together. And quit using Scarcella. Yeah. yeah we salute uh, uh, District Attorney Kenneth Thompson on that. Uh, we uh, yeah. much oh, absolutely. Uh, respect for him for that. Uh, they got some people out here trying to make a difference. So that's all good stuff. Absolutely. What is going on in Missouri? Yeah, this is this is. I mean, we talked about Eric Garner and uh, you know in, in New York in, in yeah. Staten Island, New York, the man that got choked by the police officer. Mm-hmm. Um, and now here we go again. Sad. This time it's a teenager. And if you watch the news over a weekend, you've you've seen this teenager, uh, you know, outside of St. Louis, uh, named Michael Brown. Um, and from all accounts, he was holding his hands up in the air. He got into a scuffle with a police officer who, who basically came up, just grabbed him off the street. Um, they got into an altercation where he was, you know, trying to put him in a chokehold, getting him in the car. He fought his way off. The, the cop basically told him to stop, uh, fired a shot. He turned around, put his hands in the air, and this cop fired nine more times at least. I mean, this kid got shot. Ten times. How do you unarmed with his hands in the air? And how do you shoot somebody ten times? times? They don't even have a weapon. If they have a weapon and you shoot them and they fall, why do you have to keep firing? You shoot an unarmed person ten times, and now you have this dead teenager. Mm-hmm. You have the city is in isn't this community is in uproar, saying, yes. why don't you stop 
uh, you know, killing, killing our teenagers? Why don't you stop killing our minority children? And then to make matters worse, the cops, before they even defuse the situation, now they come out in riot gears and with mm. dogs. So it basically looks like a scene from the 60s that uh, here we go. We, got, we have uh, this line of, and even when you look at the picture, uh, on this article is from 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 the 11th. So what's that? A couple mm-hmm. few days ago, mm-hmm. you have in riot gear all these cops, and the, you're talking about a, a a minority, mostly black community. And I count one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine police in this picture. Mm-hmm. They're all white men. Mm-hmm. It's like where is the representation, and why? I, I mean, obviously this guy is a, a, a white police officer that yeah. kills this teenager. Nobody in this picture is representative of anybody in the community. So how do you – and then they say, they say uh, you know, Eric Holder came out, and he's making a statement saying aggressively pursuing investigations such as this is critical for preserving trust between law enforcement and the communities they serve. This is not – these are not people serving the community. This is – these are basically uniform. This is a uniform lynch mob. That's it. This is not. You're not serving and protecting me. You come in, you kill me, and then when I get upset yeah. and say I'm having a protest about it, mm-hmm. then more of you come more. out, exactly. put on riot gear, and and uh, start shooting tear gas, bring out dogs, basically saying we'll treat you just like we treated the Negroes. Yeah. Back in the 60s. Well, here's, the, the doing. well, here's what you do. Gauge the temperature of the country right now. At least the media. Let's just say the media. Uh, that uh, on on CNN, uh, I believe it was yesterday or the day before. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they're they're on they're on the news. They're talking about this tragedy, the right. loss of this young man. Right. And they say, hold on one moment. Mm-hmm. We have to break in right now. Breaking news. Mm-hmm. Uh, they break into uh, the uh, death of Robin Williams, and no mm-hmm. disrespect for that. Our mm-hmm. condolences to his family for that loss. However. Uh, they break in about a wreath being placed on the Hollywood Star Walk of Fame for this actor. Uh, are you kidding me? A While a young man has been slaughtered. A man has been slaughtered at the age of 17 by a cop, which seems to be the trend in this country right now. The cops are on a killing spree. Yes. And we want to break in and say we need to hold on, stop the presses, everybody stop what you're doing right now. We are laying a wreath at the Hollywood Walk of, Walk of Fame. That is the most tra- tragic and most ridiculous thing I know, have ever why, seen. Why is that life more important, my, this, this kid's life? Though? Well, he's a black man. That, I mean, that, that's it. That's the, whole, that's the whole thing. That sucks. That absolutely sucks. Are you kidding me? A wreath? Because they laid a wreath down. How many wreaths did they lay for this boy? How many times did they break into another story and talk about this boy being shot to death? Absolutely. Yep. That's the temperature of this of the media in this country right now, and and that's the kind of thing that you know why and and we hear it here all the time that on a just cause coast to coast that we talk about the things that people don't talk about and and like what we heard uh, in Washington D.C. a couple of weeks ago is it's like if it's not about the weather yeah you know but then something tragic like this you know you would think that the media would be all over it but then they don't want to you know it, it's like it, it's all political. And, and it, it's, uh, it, it's, it's a shame. Oh, crap. It's a shame. Well, uh, we're going to be talking about that one, and, and, and hopefully uh, uh, the media will be talking about it because it is something that needs to, you know, people need to talk about it. Let's, uh, let's shift gears and go to our first guest that is going to be joining us this evening. It's Justin Brooks. And uh, Professor Justin Brooks is the director of California Innocence Project. Uh, and uh, so uh, we're going to – 
hear a little bit about that, and then we're going to have uh, another guest joining us. So, uh, Mr. Brooks, are you there, sir? Yes, I am. How, How are you? Doing? doing great. great. How are you? Great. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you for joining us. Tell us a little bit about uh, the California Innocence Project and how you got uh, engaged with that, how you got it going, and, and some of the things that, uh, you know, the, the objective of your organization. Sure. Uh, well, 20 years ago, I heard about a young Puerto Rican woman um, in her early 20s who was uh, on death row in um, Illinois, and I read about it in a newspaper article. And she'd been sentenced to death on a plea bargain. And that was fairly shocking to me. I didn't think anyone uh, could be sentenced to wait, death wait. on a plea bargain. Sentenced to death yeah. on a plea? That doesn't sound like much so, of a plea. Yeah, what was the what was the other choice? Yeah, yeah. yeah that's a, a, what's the bargain part? <laughs> that's a plea, but it's not a bargain. Oh, not so at all. I... Uh, so I drove out to the prison. I was teaching law school in Michigan at the time, and, and I met with her. I went to high school in Puerto Rico, and, and she really she didn't really speak English fluently. She didn't really speak Spanish fluently. She didn't really know what had happened to her, and uh, she had been pled out by this lawyer who'd done no investigation in her case, and she never got a trial. And so I had a I went back and told my law students about the case. I said, there's this young woman on death row. She never had a trial who wants to help me investigate this case. And four of my law students volunteered to do that. And that was sort of the birth of the Innocence Project for me. I We spent the next four years um, and found a ton of evidence that she was actually factually innocent. So on top of her having no trial, now you have an innocent person sitting on death row. And I found out more and more how common that was. And, uh, you know, more than a dozen people during that period of time actually walked off death row in Illinois. And I decided to move to California, and I started the California Innocence Project 15 years ago at California Western School of Law in San Diego. And since then, we've been investigating cases of innocent people in prison and getting them out. Excellent. Are you guys, because um, I know from our research on the innocent pro- Innocence Projects, um, like the the national one in New York, that it's, it's primarily based on uh, DNA exoner- exoneration, um, you know, because obviously they don't they don't have all the resources um, to to get through even the DNA based cases that they have, uh, let alone, you know, go after other ones. So as far as the California Innocence Project are you guys primarily DNA based? Do you go after um, you know other other factual um, events that happen that prove innocence, or how does that happen? I mean, how does that work? Yeah, I mean, the truth is most criminal cases don't have DNA. You know, DNA right. is this amazing tool that can exonerate people by you know definitively showing their innocence, but you know in most cases it doesn't exist. So in in the last 12 cases where we've walked people out of prison. It's had nothing to do with DNA, and in fact, California, the kind of the DNA cases are sort of drying up because we've gone through pretty much all of them, and California was the first state to start using DNA back in the early 90s. So, no, we, we, my law students, I have a team of law students and a team of lawyers, we go out and track down witnesses in cases and reinvestigate uh, cases where we don't have DNA. 
And lots of times we get recantations from witnesses or we can prove people are innocent through other means. So so why is it then, you know, you have the DNA there, okay, that, that they could use to prove whether or not this person committed this crime or whatever the case may be. Why is it that the, these prosecutors and judges fight so hard not to, to test it, not to, I mean, to, to, to acknowledge that the DNA doesn't belong to this person who they say committed this crime? Well, I used to think when I first started doing this work that it was people trying to protect themselves against civil lawsuits that, you know, you come back in and you're reopening a case and then people are going to get sued. But now I, I, I've come to believe it's more about ego and and people just don't like anyone coming into their workspace and telling them they did a bad job. And when we show up in a small town in California investigating a case that maybe a prosecutor spent three years uh, successfully putting someone behind bars and all the police department were involved and the judge was involved, nobody wants to see us showing up. And they don't want to revisit these old cases. So that we come up against wall after wall after wall in these cases. And, and there are some great prosecutors out there. In San Diego, we're very lucky to have a prosecutor who's totally open to reviewing old cases. But my experience has been that most prosecutors don't want to reopen old cases and have no interest in going back to them. Right. Go ahead, Cliff. Well, I was just going to say, you know, you know it can't be because they fear they feel like they're going to uh, have level civil litigation come against them because they have they have this prosecutorial um you know immunity immunity, Mm -hmm. uh the same way with Mm -hmm. the judges so it's not that and uh you know maybe yeah like you say they're ego but then they they have this you know this 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 99 percent uh you know conviction rate that is just totally ridiculous uh how do you how are you that good that you have a 99 percent conviction rate but if you if you attack that, then they feel like, well, we're not going to get funding from from the state or from the county or wherever we have jurisdiction. How how do they? What gets me is how do they bring themselves to fight against the fact that there's DNA saying that this person did not commit the crime, and the the double edged sword to that is if this person didn't commit the crime and they're locked behind bars, then another person did commit the crime, and they're walking around free to commit yet another crime. Mm-hmm. And if you have... Well, if that's you have, exactly right. Right. Yeah, I mean, if they're, exactly fighting right. Against, if they're fighting against DNA, then when you guys come in and say, hey, we, just, we have factual evidence that shows, yeah, it's not a DNA issue, which is, you know, um, the quote-unquote easy. I mean, none of them are easy to overturn, but a DNA is, is cut and dry. But then when you guys come in, I'm sure they fight you tooth and nail, you know, uh, tooth and, 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 and everything to try to keep you from getting their, their, uh, all of their convictions overturned. Well, I mean, there's very few areas of society that's more politicized than the criminal justice system. I mean, it's politics runs the whole thing. And so when we come into these situations, there's a lot of people who are going to look bad a lot of times. We're going to come back in and show another person committed the crime, which means, as you say, that means a guilty person has been walking the streets um, recommitting crimes at the time this person's been in prison. And so it's, it's a double screw-up. 
you got a guy behind bars who's innocent, you got people walking the street who are guilty, and you can imagine, even though you're right, there's prosecutorial immunity and, and the police have limited immunity, there's still a lot of people that look bad, people can lose their jobs, people will be not elected in the next campaign. And so politics drives a lot of this, uh, and, and that's a, a shame because it's not always about justice. And, and it, you know, you said there's a 99% conviction rate, but, you know, 95% of that's plea bargains. So yeah. Yeah. you have uh, very few cases that are tried and ultimately convicted. And, and that's why Brian Banks, who's one of our clients, his story is so important, because he's someone who pled, um, who was innocent. And when that happens, you have a truly broken system. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we have a caller. And so, Cliff, let's go to the phones and, and, uh, and uh, take this caller. Okay, uh, caller uh, Rose, we you have a question for the for the uh, for the host or the guest? Yes, I think I have a question for Just Cause and for your guests tonight, and that is: Has it ever been sought out, or or anybody looked into who actually originated, or what is what is the origin? of prosecutors and judges having immunity. How did that ever become law? And has anybody ever done a study on it to find out who actually put such a crooked, perverse law in place? Is that you can you can do anything you want to, but you're safe. So, you know, it makes me start wondering Okay, what, what is, where is the line drawn at? Because if I can take away your life, and there's more than one way in which to take away a person's life. Sometimes it's taken away through a violent act or, or, or they were shot to death, as this young man recently uh, uh, happened to him in Ferguson, Missouri. Or it could be many other factors that factor into the into this that you took away my life. So what I mean to me when I think about that, I'm thinking, well, it, it makes me it puts me in a state of awe. How did this happen? Who originated such a law? And why in the world did it become a part of our justice system? Because what you're doing, you're killing people legally because you may not ever think of it as murder as such. But there is a lot of ways in which you destroy people's lives. And so what, should we not as an organization, a different organization in this country, pursue having that taken away that if you call somebody to go to prison and you and you had the knowledge that they were innocent and you put them in prison anyway, you had the evidence in front of you, should not we be fighting an intense fight against this particular so-called law uh, that is causing people's lives and families to be destroyed every day and thank god for your guest tonight that that goes beyond just dna there's some horrible things going on in this country that has nothing to do with dna 
And I'm, I was so glad to hear him say that tonight, that we realize that there are some serious crimes being committed in this country, and if we only stay within the realm of DNA, how many other people out there are going to die as a result of this? And they don't want to think of it as murder, but in actuality, when you can do something to me and there's no consequences for it, I mean, why wouldn't you do it again? And why wouldn't you do it to hundreds and thousands of people in this country? Because you don't have to answer for it. You can just do these things and destroy people's lives and go on. And and he's another one that's gone. Okay, let's go to the next one. Well, what's going to stop these people? We as parents, if we don't take and put some laws in place for our children that if you're wrong, if you steal the cookie out the cookie jar, if you do something I told you not to do, there are consequences for it. Our kids would be like wild weeds growing up everywhere. But we say, look, we have rules in this house, and these are the rules. And if you don't abide by these rules, then you're going to suffer the consequences for it. So. Uh, should uh, can have anybody? I guess my final question originally uh, uh, is, is coming from the fact that is there anybody that even knows who who put this law in place? And shouldn't we have an intense fight in being sure that it's changed? Because judges and prosecutors will continue to destroy the lives of American citizens until somebody says, if you do this and you put them in prison, and you put this poor woman on death row at 20 years old, doesn't even speak English, then you should go to death row. Spend some time there. And not just let you spend time there. Let you experience what it means uh, to lay on a table and have a lethal injection. And you're saying, I didn't do it, I didn't do it. Let you experience some of these things. Mm -hmm. Thank you for a moment. All right, thank you uh, for your call. And, and okay. I mean, the bottom line, and I'll let you get into it, Sam, but, I mean, the prosecutors and judges, well, they, they voted themselves. I, yeah. I, I was getting ready to turn it over to the professor. I mean, <laughs> Sure. Yeah. Well, sovereign yeah. immunity goes yeah. back a long way. It goes back to the British crown, and you know, it goes back to our founding fathers, of the idea that the crown was immune from lawsuits. And I think the caller, when she said about where do you draw the line is really the big question, because I think we can all agree that you don't want a system where people can sue whenever there's a mistake, because if there's a mistake, then people aren't, you know, judges aren't going to want to do the job they're doing, and police don't want to do the job they're doing, because sometimes they're wrong. But the problem is when you get into this kind of egregious behavior that we see in this country where people have immunity and they say they were acting within the scope of, of their employment, like police beating people, bad shootings, and you know hiding evidence, and the kinds of things that I see in my cases. And, yes. and that's where there should be no immunity. Well, Mr. Brooks, uh, Lamont here, uh, chiming in on this conversation, I... What boggles my mind is that if the president of the United States is accountable and can be impeached uh, out of office as as far as acts are concerned, I know you just explained that uh, where uh, judges and, and courts don't want to be sued civilly. We're talking now, uh, I believe, I don't believe our forefathers meant in any way it's immunity against criminal acts. 
These are criminal actions that are taking place mm-hmm. by prosecutors. This is not a civil case or civil issues in most cases these days. You're talking about criminal acts and violation of the Constitution of the United States. That's right. So, again, I don't think our forefathers intended that. If the civil no, issue I, and I I completely agree with you. And you know, when you look at some of these cases, I you know, when I first came on, I heard you talking about how race affects the system. It is so rare that prosecutors will ever lose their jobs. Um, but you you look at the Duke Lacrosse case. That's one of the rare cases where that actually happened. And it's hard not to notice that the kids involved there were white wealthy kids. Uh, from the North who were involved in it, and the prosecutor was disbarred. And, you know, you rarely ever see anything like that happen, no matter, you know, what the conduct is in the case. So uh, I I agree with you that the line is not drawn in appropriate places, and sometimes they are criminal acts. If you hide evidence and somebody goes to prison for 20 years for it, that should be treated as a criminal act. Absolutely. And uh, lots of times it's treated as, you know, within the scope of, of their employment and therefore, you know, not liable for it. I don't I don't know how that's going to change. I mean, I think video has certainly changed how we look at these cases. You look back at the Rodney King case and, you know, how that, you know, you had something actually on video for the first time. And now you go on YouTube and you can find a thousand of those videos. Oh, man. Right. Tell me. And, right. and the thing is, just like, you know, um, just like with Rodney King, you have that on video, mm-hmm. and then the fact that that they came back in that case and said, "Well, there's no wrongdoing by the officers." I mean, mm-hmm. how much video do you need of a man Being beating beat. another man Absolutely. with a with a with a cherry stick baton? No, how about by, uh, six or eight yeah, men and, I mean, beating one they're, man? They're beating him with the with the. I mean. You know, I grew up. I grew up in L.A. I was a bad kid. I admit it. I've been hit with a police baton, and uh, you know, maybe sometimes. No, no, I don't think I ever deserved it. But those things, it, to have more than one person welling on you with a baton, trust me, that thing hurts very badly. And it will one shot with that stick. It's it's built to put you down, yeah. and it will. And but to have that on video and then say no wrongdoing by the officers. He he was on Angel Dust. We needed backup to subdue him. He was he was resisting arrest. How is a man on hands and knees with a hand up in front of his face saying please don't hit me? That's resisting arrest. Either lay down and let us beat you to death, or you're resisting. But you mm-hmm. beat him unrecognizable. Unrecognizable. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. They ended up yeah. they they ended up giving him a million dollars for every crack that was in his skull. That is wow. that is atrocious mm-hmm. for our for our legal system to even have to come to that. But it would not have if the officers would have would would have been treated right instead of well they have immunity and they were doing their and job. No right. Now we don't beat them, we just kill them and no, be through it. No accountability. That's true. You're not you're not going to fight us because we're going to shoot you. We're just going to kill you and be done with it. Go ahead, Sam. You know how do you? But do you think people view that? You look back at that case, Rodney King. How long ago is that now? It's twenty years. Like, 20 yeah. years, yeah. So I wonder, I wonder, though, if people have become desensitized to that 
at this point. That that's kind of the scary thing is because if you do go on YouTube, you can find tons of police brutality videos, things like that going on every day now because they've got cameras on the dashboards and and sometimes the second police officer to arrive doesn't point it away from the action and they catch it on video and and it seems to be something that's happening every day. And, and I, I do worry about that, that we're not necessarily becoming more sensitive to it, becoming less sensitive. Right. And, and, and I'm, I'm sorry not to cut you off, Sam. And I know we've got to go to the next guest. But the thing that, that really gets me, Justin, is that as obvious as it is when, a, when, uh, when the authorities have video of perpetrators mm-hmm. or criminals mm-hmm. committing crime and they use that mm-hmm. in the court of law to say, we have you on video. We know you did it. We have enough evidence to prosecute you right here. Any jury is going to find you guilty. Why is it not the same thing when you have a law enforcement officer caught on video to say, we have the evidence of you. This, this is brutality. You're going way beyond the realms of force that you need to. Why is that footage not enough to say you as a police officer stepped outside the bounds right. of your position and you're guilty of the same crime as any given criminal. Mm-hmm. Just wanted to just wanted to make that yeah. comment before we move Well, it's on. a double standard is what it is. Absolutely. Absolutely. Is. And let's bring somebody yeah. in on this conversation who, uh, had, who you know, has, has been there, not, not in that regard, but has been there firsthand from a standpoint of wrongful incarceration, wrongly accused, uh, and that would be uh, Brian Banks. And, uh, and and that's a, an individual that that uh, Justin Brooks is, is well aware of as well. So welcome to the program, Brian. How you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for having me. How you guys doing? Doing well. Doing good. Doing well. Thank you for taking time out of your schedule and joining us. Yep. Big um, up to Polytech. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> and, and you know your story is one that's well known. Uh, it's it's uh, you know gross injustice and the way things went down and but to see how you know you your life turned around after after you know being able to to get the case overturned. Um, so tell us a little bit about you know your background and, and then you know how 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 your life kind of got turned upside down. You had aspirations of uh, of football and uh, becoming a professional football player eventually, and uh, but then this you know, put a little bump in the road uh, a few years ago. So tell us a little bit about how, how all of this went down. Yeah. So at the age of 16, I was 11th in the state, excuse me, 11th in the nation as a middle linebacker, being recruited by every university that you could practically think of. And I had verbally committed to USC on a full scholarship. It was a school that I had always wanted to go to and dreamed of going to. Um, summer going into my senior year, July 8, 2002, um, a female classmate of mine and I chose to go in an area on our campus that was known as a make-out spot. Uh, it was known amongst the students that this was the area. Uh, she and I went to this area. We made out. We kissed, but we never had sex. And by the end of that day, I was being arrested and accused of kidnapping and rape. Wow. I mean, just just that that quick your life can turn. And, and 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 no investigation. Know your side of the story, Jess. She said you kidnapped her and you raped her. So we're gonna take her word for it and, and you're getting you know, initially you get you get locked up for it. It's like you're getting arrested and you're like, Man, what's right. going on? I mean, 
we 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 kissed around the corner, behind the door, behind the bushes, or whatever. However, it, it played out. We kissed, and now you getting arrested for for rape. And what was mm-hmm. going through your mind? I mean, on on both sides. No, on one side you gotta be like like man. This is this is crazy. How did I get in this position? On the other hand, well, it'll be over soon because you know I didn't do nothing. Well, that's exactly what I thought. I mean, here I am, 16 years old, and I'm being accused of a crime that I don't quite fully understand myself. And I'm sitting inside of a cell in juvenile hall, and I'm being told by every adult and every security officer, and you know all the different people that I came across at that point in time that as soon as I, you know got in front of a judge, everything would be figured out, and I'd be okay, and I'd be going home. I kept being told that I was I was going home, and the more I was told I was going home, the longer things began to take its course. The next thing you know, I'm no longer being tried as a juvenile. I'm now being tried as an adult. So at the age of 17, I'm now facing 41 years to life in prison for kidnapping and rape. There's no physical evidence. There's no DNA. This girl had accused me of, penetrating her uh, and said that I left semen inside of her. There's DNA testing that was done um, hours uh, after she and I were, you know, around each other and there was no DNA that was found. The DNA was negative. And that's a story within itself because the lawyer that I had at the time never presented the DNA to the courts. She never answered it in as evidence. You're going back to what we were talking about earlier, you know, Brian's is a case where DNA couldn't exonerate him after he was convicted because there was never any evidence to start with. It was just based on her word alone and nothing else. And, you know, go ahead, Cliff. No, I was going to ask, so so they, they did a DNA test, they had the kit, but your attorney never presented it as evidence. Yeah, it just wasn't, it wasn't used. She was... Um, excited to get it and said that this would really help out a lot. And I think it just got to a point to where a plea bargain made more sense to her at that time. And is she still practicing in L.A.? Uh, she's actually a commissioner, uh, a judge now in L.A. Oh, well, why don't why don't you go ahead, uh, gotta be kidding me. Brian, for our gratification, for the gratification of our listeners, we like calling people names on this show <laughs> when they're out of line, when they're out of control. How does she, a, a, a commissioner? Come on, man, you got to, come on, come on, give up the name. Bro. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll let Justin Brooks take over on that. I think okay. he probably can explain it a little better. <laughs> yeah, we, under, we understand some of the situations. So, so, Justin, can you accommodate us? Yeah, actually, I'm the lawyer who has to appear in front of these guys every day. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'll take a pass as well. It can be pretty easily researched on the internet. Yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. We, we'll, one we'll, the, we'll pull that one up. Yeah, oh, one of the support goodness. crew get me that name. I have no problem, uh, you know, giving you guys a pass. But I, I will be putting that name out there. I'm just curious. I'm sorry. Oh, so, okay. I'm just curious, uh, Brian and and Justin. I'm trying to wrap my hands around the logic here. That you have D- you have DNA evidence that exonerates you out of the gate from the beginning, mm-hmm. and you're telling me your judge your your attorney felt it appropriate to say we'd rather take a plea when the DNA test would have proved your innocence anyway. Well, yeah. the, it, I, the problem is, is it's, a, it's negative evidence. So, in other words, a rape kit was done, and it was done that day. So this isn't one of those late reporting cases where a week later a woman comes forward and says she's raped. 
It comes back with no semen, even though she said he ejaculated. So she could have presented the negative test to the jury and said, look, she said he ejaculated. There's no evidence of that. So all we now have is, is this young girl's word about it, and he's saying something different. Now, Brian's in the situation of he's a 16-year-old kid. He's locked up in juvie. His lawyer keeps coming back to him repeatedly, saying uh, different deals. And this is what's happened to our criminal justice system. It's a casino where there's different deals that will be offered to you, you know, door number one and door number two and door number three. At a certain point, you get to the a point of saying, you know what, is it worth the risk? And before Brian was going into court, she says to him, look, you're a big black teenager, you're going to go in there. This jury's not going to like you. It's going to be an all-white jury. It's going to be your word against hers. I think we're going to lose this trial, and you're going to go to prison for the rest of your life. You're going to get 40-some years to life in prison if we lose. If you take a deal, I might be able to get you probation. Worst-case scenario, you're going to do a couple more years. So wow. what do you do in that situation? At the age of 16, no. what do you do? You're no intimidated kidding. at that point by the system. That is, that is, that is tragic. And and uh, just a question, because from my standpoint, uh, you did not receive viable counsel from H. Elizabeth Harris, the uh, defense attorney that's now the Los Angeles Superior Court Commissioner. <laughs> you did not receive proper counsel from Ms. Harris. So, uh, you know, why why is it that somebody else didn't step in? Why is it? that the judge didn't say, hey, because, you know, the judge got to know you have a DNA test from the, uh, you know, you know from, from the so-called victim. The prosecuting attorney knows there is a DNS from the so-called victim, and your attorney will not present it. Where is the justice if nobody came to the rescue of a 16-year-old kid? Where is the justice? Well, she got promoted. Absolutely. Well, yeah, we, we, gotta, we have uh, – we have another comment. Oh, uh, Rose is back on the line. She wants to comment on, on this situation. This is, this is sickening. Uh, Rose, we have you back on. Go ahead with your comment. Yeah, I just wanted to ask Justin, um, do, do you not, is there not any law on the book that states if you lie on a person and that person goes to prison, and then you finally acknowledge that you lied, as she did for Brian, in Brian's case. Is there not a law of some sort that says if you lie on a person and they serve time in prison, what is the consequences for this liar? Well, there, there's definitely perjury laws. They're very rarely applied in these cases. In Brian's case, it actually has been applied because his case has received so much media attention. And on top of that, uh, the, the young girl in Brian's case who uh, testified falsely against him, she actually won a judgment against the school district for a million and a half dollars while Brian was locked up for the failure of the school to protect her while she was at school. And now they've gone back after her for that money, plus interest, plus attorney's fees, and I think she's now in debt to uh, the school district for $3 million. Well, but, thank God but, for that. But Absolutely. backing up a little bit, you know, I know you want to, you, it's easy for us to say this lawyer did a terrible job, and, and I'm not going to disagree with any of that. I think any lawyer could look at this case and say they would have done things differently. But I think the bigger picture here is that we got a criminal justice system with sentences that are so great that innocent people will plea, 
that Brian, I mean, we say Brian was a 16-year-old kid, but I don't know about any of us what we might have done in the same situation not being a 16-year-old kid. You make a business decision going, hey, am I going to go in there and risk dying in prison? Or am I going to take this deal for something I didn't even do and do my time quick and get my life back? So that's really the story of this case beyond, you know, bad lawyering. It's really we got a broken system where innocent people will plea to not risk dying in prison. And and, and, that's uh, what and do you think it goes back also to the thing of uh, prosecutors winning at any cost? And so, you know, putting a deal on the table, so to speak, that makes absolutely no sense to, you know, like Brian. Yeah, it, uh, it, it's of no benefit to him in a sense, but the prosecutor is going to get a win regardless of what deal is on the table. Yeah. And then uh, is that is uh, is that one plea called an Edwards plea? Is that what it was, what it was called? And, Alfred, and be, Alfred, Alfred plea. Alfred, yeah, there it is. And right before and that you, one is like you, crazy. Uh, before you go into that uh, anymore, uh, Rosie, thank you for the for the question. Did you have anything else um, that you wanted no, to add? I I just was curious about that. Thank you. Okay, thank you for the question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, 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 with that Alfred plea, it still is like, but where, where is the justice? Yeah. Because not only do you have the person that's being, uh, you know, you have the person in Brian's position mm-hmm. that says, hey, you know, I, I, need, I need some guidance. Yeah. Then you have the person in uh, H. Elizabeth Harris' position mm-hmm. who didn't provide it, obviously, mm-hmm. didn't do uh, what should have been done. Then you have the prosecutor who says, I will take a plea and I will force a plea mm-hmm. on a kid that I know, that I know is innocent. There, there is no evidence of his wrongdoing. Exactly. And then, like you say, Justin, you have an entire system right. that's willing to back all that up. You have a judge that says... Hey, you know, uh, defense attorney, are you sure you want to do this plea? Uh-huh. Knowing in the back of the judge's mind that you got the rape kit with nothing in it, why don't you present that to the jury and explain to them that from what she said, there should be some physical evidence. With the lack of that, where is the and, – and did the rape kit show that, you know, within an hour or two afterward, did she even have any sex? So there is another issue that could have been gone after mm-hmm. by the by the defense attorney, but you have the entire system that is that is broken down and says at the at the loss of this sixteen year old kid mm-hmm. with a with a promising future that's being accepted to every college that he applies to mm-hmm. that obviously has you know not only the uh the the athleticism to go but you got to have have uh you know you got to have some grades to get into USC this is not like you know your your run of the mill uh community college that's just you know just like a, a stepping stone school right. where is everybody that plays a part in, in this how about coming to the rescue of the innocent before they get a 40-year uh, prison term mm-hmm. for something they didn't do. What, how is, where's that part of the system? And, and I think that's where uh, even I, I was going to ask, you know, how, how did, Justin how did, uh, and Brian, how did you get hooked up with Justin and the uh, California Innocence Project? Um, this was about, uh, say, about four years later, um, after I had paroled from prison, I was now home serving a five-year mandatory parole uh, parole sentence, um, and that was at the time where I wore a GPS tracking device on my ankle. Um, mm-hmm. I 
had all kind of restrictions and guidelines. I couldn't live within 2,000 feet of any school or park. I had to register every year, and it was impossible for me to, to, to find any type of work. Um, no social life. I mean, I, I owned nothing. I had nothing to my name for an additional five years after I had came home. Four years into that five years, um, I received a uh, Facebook friend request from the girl who had accused me of raping her nine years ago. Uh, now on Facebook trying to be friends. And instead of accepting the request, I sent her a uh, direct message asking why would she friend request me. And her response was that she was hoping that we could allow bygones to be bygones, that mm. she was immature at the time but was much more mature now. And um, to make a long story short, she uh, was really adamant about wanting to hang out and, and hook up. Mm-hmm. And you know what, um, Brian, I met you, and this is Ethel, I, I met you and, mm-hmm. and Justin and um, Charlotte at the Innocence Project uh, convention there um, yeah, yeah. a year, a year, a year or two ago or something like that. But anyway, you guys were mm-hmm. talking, we went to one of the um, the um, um, uh, meetings and they were talking about recantations. So this girl actually recanted a couple of times, did she not? Yeah, so she and on video. Yeah, I'll let you go ahead and take over in that part, JB. But basically, yes, she she recanted her initial uh, accusations against me, and uh, once she realized that um, things had been recorded, um, she then recanted her recantation. Wow! She was afraid of of that she was going to have to pay all this money back, which ultimately now they've gone back after her for it. So she wanted to get back together with Brian. She wanted to let bygones be bygones, but she didn't want to pay a million and a half dollars for it. So she she comes out, says, I lied, Mm -hmm. and then says, well, I lied about lying. And so... so, But see, the the thing that you have to understand is that she didn't come... You know, a lot of people use the term she came forward. Um, She didn't necessarily came forward. She, um, She willingly... Uh, gave up information about what really happened in the context of conversation between the two of us. Mm-hmm. She didn't realize that we were in a private investigation firm. They were in private investigators right next door monitoring the entire conversation. Right. And once she realized that this was the situation, then it became, um, well, I never said it. And the, the video was altered. And that wasn't really me who arranged the meeting. Um, a hacker uh, hacked my Facebook page and made contact with Brian. That wasn't me. So, so she just she just went on a lion spree exactly. at that point. This is this this is too much. Um, I mean, I had read the story, but you you getting into parts that I had uh, heard before. This girl, we're gonna ask y'all for her name. Just, I, I want well, that's right there. No, no, no. I want I want one of them to say <laughs> to say the name, but we'll get into that. We got a we got another call. call who has a, a question? Uh, Sharon, you have a question for our guest. Yes, I have a well, I have a couple comments. Number one is his lawyer. Um, it, it's a shame that these lawyers now she has the, the the evidence, but these lawyers it's not about the people. It's about getting a conviction so they can get a promotion. You know, it ought to be a law against that. And then, as far as his accuser. Yeah, she owes that money, but there should be a law that when when they commit this perjury like this, they ought to do time. They should yep. do the amount of time that 
that uh, they're, they're, the person that had to serve that time, they mm-hmm. should serve equal time for that type of stuff. These right. people are ruining people's lives, and they're getting away with it. Yeah, that Absolutely. is true. You know, um, when Thank you're talking about... Thank you for about, your comments, Sharon. Yeah, and, and even with, um, as far as the, the lawyers having evidence, that's the kind of the same thing that took place in the Luana Clark case, you know, in which her lawyer, you know, had the evidence showing that uh, she's not the one who signed off on, on, on this document. You know, a handwriting uh, um, expert proved that, and he had the evidence right there. The judge knew all this, but, but she still goes to prison anyway for six months? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think the listening to Justin, uh, his comment that uh, civilly they have come after this young lady, they're, they're pursuing her. Uh, here's the problem. If I work at a factory making $8 an hour, you can sue me for a million dollars until the cows come home. Guess what? You're not going to get anything because I don't have a million dollars. That's right. So at the end of the day, civilly, uh, you can come after me. Hey, that's on my credit. I owe money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What am I going to do against this person and, and file? See, that's the problem. Everything is soft-touched with these defendants, or not defendants, but with these people that make these false claims. As, as Justin alluded to earlier, there's nothing done to these people. That's yeah. right. So as a result, and, and if, the other problem is most of them are inmates. <laughs> so right. I mean, we have a, we've created a snitch culture yeah. such that right. when, when you're facing three strikes in California, you got guys they will say anything to stop that third strike from coming down, and so we have a, an epidemic level of that. And that's right. where most of the fabrications go. So how do you really deter a guy who's serving time in prison with perjury? You know, they're not going to be deterred by perjury charges from coming in and testifying falsely. That's why in Canada they've actually abolished snitch testimony. They've just said as a matter of law it's going to be unreliable testimony, so we're not going to let these guys come in and, and just say whatever. But and we're, you know, our system is broken in a lot of ways, and and these these plea bargains in cases like Brian, it's I'd like to say you know Brian's case is unusual in the fact that Brian's an extraordinary guy, and he got extraordinarily unlucky, and then he got extraordinarily lucky, and that's right. where his case is really unusual. But I'm telling you, today between nine and five across this country, there were a lot of guys in Brian's shoes who pled out in cases they shouldn't have, and the bigger the system gets the more it doesn't work without these pleas because we can't have trials anymore because our system is too big. And, you know, with the drug laws and three strikes and all these things that have increased the size of the system, the rest of the world, when when I go and talk in Europe about our criminal justice system, they can't believe this idea about plea bargaining and that we do these things. And yet people in this country think we have the best system in the world. Yeah. They're they're quite they need mistaken. A wake up feel. And and you know the uh, we have another caller on. But to answer the question for uh, the last caller, Sharon, when she's saying where's the law? I mean the law is there, but you the prosecutors have to go after they these people for perjuring themselves. And if they use them as their witness, they're not going. Go, they're if they start going after after their witnesses who lied. That's just like with the jailhouse snitch. If they go after the jailhouse snitch who lied. They're gonna run out of snitches real That's quick. That's right. If they if they start telling people who you lied on the stand to get me my conviction to w- uphold my ninety nine percent, if they start prosecuting those people, they're gonna lose their cases. So it is it is such a crooked, mm. twisted, just web of deceit. The whole system, and just like you said, uh, Justin, 
everybody says, oh, no, we got the best system in the world. They really need to really Live it. get down and look at what happens. I mean, you look at, like, the POGO report. Mm-hmm. You look at all the things that happen, how much prosecutorial and judicial misconduct happens, it's ridiculous. We're going to take another caller. Uh, We have Yolanda on the line. Thanks for holding, Yolanda. Sorry about the wait. Uh, You have a comment for for our guest? Yeah, I'm trying to understand why he ended up on probation or whatever for five years after she'd come forward and said that he didn't do it. Why should he have to register as a sex offender? and go through all that when it's found that he didn't do the crime. Right. I think, uh, and you cleared up, uh, Brian, I, I think that might have happened after after he spent the time in. Right, right. So the, the timeline of, of everything was uh, 2002, I was uh, arrested. Um, 2003, I was convicted. Uh, 2007, I paroled home at the age of 22 and then served an additional five years on parole. Four years into that five years is when she came forward, and then it took another additional year um, working with the California Innocence Project to um, have my habeas petition granted. Oh, okay. That's and Brian's is the up. first case. Brian's is the first case we've ever taken on in our history of a guy who has actually been released from prison because, you know, Brian said to us, look, I'm never going to be released because I'm, for the rest of my life, I'm going to be a convicted sex offender. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And this is going to affect me. I'll never get a job. I'll never get my, I'll never get my life back. And, and this girl has come forward and said I didn't do it. And we got a videotape of her saying he didn't do it. But it's still, even with that videotape, this case was not easy. And like I said earlier, when I was talking to you guys, you know, I got this woman who went to death row on a plea bargain, and it's nearly impossible to undo her plea. And even with a video, it's nearly impossible to undo a plea. So we plea out 95% of these cases, and they're very hard to ever undo. And if if Brian hadn't convinced the L.A. District Attorney's Office to, to investigate the case themselves, and we weren't able to investigate it together, and they didn't ultimately concede on this case, I don't know if we ever would have won, even with wow. that video. That's Justin how tough Bryan. it is. Justin, Brian, let's take a quick break, uh, and we're going to come back, and, let, and, and Brian, I want you to share with us where your life is today. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and all the, like, like Justin was saying, you know, you, you had, a, had a bad break, and then you had uh, some good things happen. So we're going to uh, take, the, take the story to the next level. Uh, just going to take just a few minutes here and take a quick break. This is the Just Cause Coast to Coast where we bring you education, awareness, and information about judicial injustice. Joining us this evening, Justin Brooks, the director of California Innocence Project and exoneree uh, Brian Banks. Uh, and most of you are very familiar with that story, and so we appreciate both of them joining us. We will be right back in a moment. Don't go anywhere. Thank you. Here are 50 white guys. Here are 50 black guys. Here's how many white guys can expect to go to prison in their lifetime. The chances amount to 1 out of 17. Now, here's how many black guys can expect the same thing. The chances are 1 out of 3. Why? Lots of reasons. It's complicated, but one thing is clear. There's a racial bias at every level of the criminal justice system. When blacks and whites commit the same kind of crimes, blacks are more likely to be arrested. Once arrested, they're more likely to be convicted. 
Once convicted, they're more likely to serve longer sentences. Look at the numbers in America's so-called war on drugs. About 14% of America's drug users are black, as are about a quarter of drug sellers. Yet blacks are 34% of people arrested for drug crimes. And those convicted of drug crimes? 46% are black. By the time we factor in sentencing, there are actually more black drug offenders than white than state prisons and federal prisons. In the end, the incarceration rate for drug crimes is 10 times higher for blacks than it is for whites. These are the facts. Racial disparities in America's war on drugs are one big reason that one of three black men can expect to go to prison in their lifetime. Thanks for listening to AJC Radio. Call in at 347-838-8976 and share your stories and comments about judicial injustice. Be a part of the AJC Radio Show every Tuesday and Thursday night, 6 p.m. Mountain, 8 p.m. Eastern. The number again, 347-838-8976 or www.blogtalkradio.com and search for A Just Cause Coast to Coast. Just Cause, Coast to Coast, where we bring you education, awareness, and information about judicial injustice. I'm Sam Thurman, along with Cliff Stewart and Ethel Lopez, as well as Lamont Banks. Joining us this evening, Justin Brooks, the director of the California Innocence Project, as well as Brian Banks. Uh, so um, Brian just mentioned the fact that once he hooked up with the, the California Innocence Project, it, it was about a year or so, I guess, Justin, when uh, when you guys were able to get the habeas corpus uh, um uh, decision is that quick yeah that is incredibly quick yeah that's um, what these I, that's cases what take years uh, i've got cases i've been working on for more than a decade i've got one case i've been working on for 17 years um, the habeas process is painfully slow and you know this case was extraordinary where we got the actual district attorney's office to join us in a joint investigation uh, they became convinced that this girl was lying, and they came, walked into court and said the magic words, which you never hear, which is, we concede. And for those of you who have seen Brian's reaction in the courtroom that day where he puts his head down, it's, it's, it's incredible because this decade-long nightmare was finally over for him. And we weren't sure what was going to happen that day. Uh, it, it, there was no guarantees that that case was going to win because we have the burden of proof. You know, when you yeah. go to trial, the prosecution has the burden of proof. But on habeas, we got to basically prove beyond a reasonable doubt innocence to get someone's conviction reversed. So, Brian, fast forward uh, to the next step. Uh, what, what happened after that? I, I know you, you're, you had the aspirations of trying out for an NFL club somewhere. So how did all that? Uh... Yeah, well, I, you know, when the California Innocence Project took on my case, I had this sense of reassurance that 
I may, in fact, get my life back and have an opportunity um, at at opportunity. So um, I made a decision. I said, well, you know, if I get this small window of opportunity, what am I going to do with it? And uh, the, the number one thing that I could think of was a dream that was stripped away from me, uh, a dream that was once uh, my everything, and that was playing football. And the fact that, you know, I lost that for 10 years, it was something that, I felt um, I wanted to give it another shot. And so I began looking at the option of playing college football, uh, and that option uh, wasn't any good because I, when I came home in 2007, I went to Long Beach City College and played half a season there. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was right before the uh, California implemented a new law that required all sex offenders that were currently on parole to wear a GPS tracking device. So once I was fitted with that, football was over all over again. Uh, but now here I am. The California Innocence Project has taken my case. I have this video that shows proof of my innocence, and I'm thinking football all over again. And so I begin training about 10 months, uh, 10 or 11 months before I was actually exonerated. So while Justin and the Innocence Project, California Innocence Project, were hard at work plugging away at my at my appeal, I'm waking up in the morning, 5 a.m., 4 a.m., and I'm going to the gym two times, three times a day trying to catch up on the 10 years of football that I had lost. Um, and the day that I was exonerated, May 24, 2012, um, Justin and I, uh, along with my mom and friends, we walked out of the courtroom, and um, outside there were cameras uh, everywhere, and everyone was interested in what was next. And um, Justin and I made a plea that I had been training for an opportunity to play in the NFL. If anybody was listening, you know, to give me a shot. And sure enough, that following day, I received a phone call from Coach Pete Carroll of Seattle Seahawks, the same coach who had recruited me when I was in high school, and he was the head coach for USC. And here we were on the phone picking up where we had left off. Uh, At one point, he was recruiting me to come to – play college football, and now here he was giving me an opportunity to come try out for an NFL uh, organization. Um, I went to Seattle and tried out for them as well as about five or six other teams before landing my spot with the Atlanta Falcons where I uh, took part in preseason summer training camp, about four different games before um, Seattle let me go. I mean, excuse me, Atlanta let me go. And since then, um, I've just been – traveling around the country, um, doing uh, speaking engagements and, and being a keynote speaker for some amazing events, um, you know, fundraisers and for different organizations and different causes. Um, but just the, the, the invitations that I've received over time and for the different reasons and the many reasons have just shown me um, how important um, my story actually is to America. Uh, and how I dealt with the the tragic, you know, situation at hand, what I chose to do with it, how I chose to respond while in it, mm-hmm. uh, and where I am now after everything that I've gone through. It, it really um, set home with a lot of people, and that put me in a position where I traveled around and, and I've done a lot of speaking engagements, and I'm still doing them today. Um, and, I mean, things have just, things have definitely changed for the better. Um, i realize that now the things that I've experienced in life um, is, is, is a way for me to turn around and help other people who have experienced uh, the same 
um, circumstances or something similar, or even just dealing with something in life that they feel is greater than them, something that they can't see past on their own, and they need some source of motivation um, that will assure them that they can get through anything. And a lot of people turn to my story. Hey, Brian, at, at one point in time, weren't, didn't you go to um, to live with Justin for a little bit? What was that about? I think you had mentioned that. <laughs> at, at the, uh, I did. Yeah, yeah, okay, at the convention. <laughs> and our relationship uh, grew even more. Um, when I, so when I did not make the team with the uh, Seattle Seahawks, I came back to California and I began training, staying in shape for hopes of another uh, opportunity. And another opportunity didn't come that season. This was in 2012. Um, so Justin and I sat at the round table, and I decided that I would uh, make my way to Las Vegas to play for the Las Vegas Locomotives. It's a United Football League. Mm-hmm. And um, my, my, my idea was to play there for a season to you know, get more experience before trying the NFL once more. I went out there and played half a season before the league. But when that league folded, I, I had pretty much left everything behind in California. And so when um, when I was done in Vegas, I had nowhere to go. I didn't know what to do next. And Justin opened his doors to me, his, uh, him, his, his family, and he brought me in. If I stayed, I think, about five or six months while I, you know, continued to train um, and just really take that time to myself and to really figure out what it was um, not really what it was. Let me say this. I had to really sit there and think, what do I do now that I'm mm. free? Yeah. That right. was my time to just really sit to myself and think about, okay, what next? And really it was a, it was a, a powerful um, period in my life because here I was at the attorney's house who saved my life, and now here I am sitting in this room, and I'm rehabilitating myself. And I'm getting my mind and my, 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 my soul and my everything prepared to try and get out and live a normal life. Right, right. Well, That's excellent. Uh, we got a, uh, another, another, another caller. Uh, we got Michelle. You have a question or comment for our guest? Uh, yes, I wanted to ask Mr. Banks. He explained a little bit about what he was doing after. And I, I wanted to know how he personally feels about others that have been wrongfully convicted because I see some people that are wrongfully convicted and once they get out they fight for others Um, he deserves to have his life back and I was glad he was able to go out and pursue his football career and all that is wonderful I just I get concerned because there are so many that have been left behind the poor and minorities that get left that nobody cares about and I was troubled because I ran across someone that was wrongfully convicted and the man got $10 million, which he deserved for being wrongfully convicted, but he was about him and himself only. And I thought about the people, what about those that get exonerated that have nothing, that have nowhere to live, that their families have been devastated by this, these tragedies? And so I wanted to know, I guess on a personal note, how this has affected you when you see others wrongfully convicted. Thank yeah. you. I think it's a really good question. Really good question. Uh, what I will say first is, um, I think it's it's um, almost impossible to expect anything from a man or woman that has been wrongfully convicted of something that they didn't do. Um, I think not until you're in those shoes where you you live day in and day out in a in a cell 
or a or a cage for years um, for something you didn't do, and you've pled to everybody that you can plead to, and you've asked help from everyone that you can ask help from, and you've cried your very last tear, and you've been so sad and so depressed and so out of it to the point to where you're not even mad anymore that you've been through what you've been through. You're not even mad that someone lied on you or you were in prison for something. You just wanted to be over. You just want to come home. So I think it's I think it's it's difficult or it's it's um it's hard to to, to necessarily ask somebody who's been through something such as what I've been through to turn around and start to help other people when for twenty years or for fifteen years or however long it was they were behind bars, no one helped them. Yeah, let me let me just add to that because I've walked a lot of guys out of prison, and Brian is a really extraordinary young man. I mean, he has an ability to communicate his story in a way that I've never seen anyone else have that ability. You know, some of our clients come out, they're struggling with PTSD, they have panic attacks every day, and expecting them to stand in front of TV cameras or audiences or go in front of legislatures and, and talk about this issue is very difficult. But, you know, I've had the privilege for the last couple of years of standing next to Brian when he's up in Congress testifying or in Sacramento, been on, you know, dozens of interviews, and obviously you can hear just today how articulate he is and how he can tell his story. So I tell my clients they've got a choice. You know, I, I don't work to get people out of prison so that they spend the rest of their life having to, you know, be exonerees. So you can just go on with your life and, and put it back together the best you can, or you can become an advocate for others. And we're all very lucky that Brian decided to become an advocate. And yeah, you know a what? Lot of- I, I want to chime in there, JB. Sorry to cut you off. I do want to say that um, I've had the opportunity um, to represent a, a number of innocent projects throughout the nation uh, in, in regards to fundraising, in regards to um, media attention or, or, you know, however else I could be of, of assistance. And throughout my travels, there are exonerees that want to stand up for change. There are exonerees that are making efforts uh, to the best of their ability um, to to turn around and help the next man. I think the difference is, is I like, like JB said, Justin said, I have a really unique situation where the media really took hold to my story and they really took hold to what it was that I had to say and what it was that I wanted to do now that I was a free man. Um, and, and most exonerees don't get that. I remember Justin said to me, one of the first things he said to me, the, the, like I think it was the day or two before I was exonerated, he said, Brian, you know, we walk into that courtroom a couple of days from now and the judge, you know, gives you your life back. Everyone's going to care about your life for the next 24 hours maybe even 48 hours. But then after that, most people won't care. They'll go right back to what they're doing and going back onto their life, and you have that option too. And there was at that moment – go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Go ahead. No, what I was going to say was at that moment that I made the decision. I said to myself, you know what, if I get my life back, then the first thing I'm going to do is turn around and start to help other people who are in similar situations. Um, And that was just a personal um, decision. Um, going back to the, the the question itself, what did I do? You know, what have I done personally? Um, so aside from football, uh, and aside from all the personal accomplishments that I that I've wanted to do since I've been free, 
Um, I've helped out on a number of cases um, of wrongfully convicted men and women. I've been successful at um, aiding two people who have been wrongfully convicted to exit from incarceration. Um, I've marched uh, for the California 12. Um, I've um, spoken at over, uh, I would say, 15 different innocent projects throughout the nation in regards to uh, funding, um, in regards to raising money and so forth. I've been to... Uh, Washington, D.C., where I spoke on Capitol Hill in regards to uh, post-conviction funding for the Innocence Project as a nationwide uh, project, as well as the Bloodworth Program. And I've also spoken on Capitol Hill in regards to law reform uh, for juveniles being wrongfully convicted, I mean, excuse me, juveniles being tried as an adult and, and plea bargaining issues. So, um, and that, that there's more into it that I've been able to, to do, and that, that is a lot of thanks and help to the, the California Innocence Project and Justin, um, but really just a personal uh, choice of mine that I would use my my heartache in, in tragic times as a vessel to turn around and help other people. But it's, it's um, a going, uh, you know, just saying it again, it's really tough to expect that from someone who um, maybe has experienced uh, a far um, graver experience than I have. And we absolutely applaud you for for that i mean uh you've had your hands full just in the last couple of years and the things that you're doing uh that's uh that's a laundry list right there that anyone would be uh would welcome that type of uh assistance lamont you were yeah and, and brian i uh i i i hear what you're saying i, I want to chime in on what you said because i think it's so true i think the reason the cry has to be made from the rooftops, from the housetops, from everywhere in this country, that change must happen is for one reason. Brian's articulate. You, you're very intelligent. Uh, you have a good support system there with Justin. The problem is prison, and, and I speak from personal experience. I spent seven years in Colorado uh, prisons, six of them to be exact, over a seven-year span for something that I did not do. So I know exactly the feeling, the emotion uh, the problem here, and this is why it is such a tragedy and why we talk on these microphones, why we do what we do, and we salute Justin for what he does and other organizations that do these things. It's for one reason. When a person goes to prison, that is a place where a person is supposed to be finished. People do not come out. She referenced one man that got out and he was about himself. I would defer from that in one point. This man... Uh, one of the young men, he was incarcerated since he was 17 years old. He was accused of murder. We're talking about the Tim Masters uh, gentleman. They took this man through such a mental war and uh, tragic events that occurred with this man mentally and emotionally. What happens, and I, I concur with what Brian said, you, they, when you go to prison for something that you didn't do, unless you have a support system, Unless you've got people that are saying, hey, I believe in you, and they can carry you and hold you by your hand and say, we believe in you. We, we're going to uh, – like Justin did, Brian here, man, I believe in you. Somebody's got to believe in you because I've sailed up doing my wrongful conviction with people that they didn't have a family out there. They didn't have a visit. They didn't have any money on their books. They had nothing. So I would see these men come in day after day, get in their bunk get under their covers, and sleep away their time. I've seen guys come in the hole with, with razor blade cuts on their arms trying to end it all. 
because nobody believed in them. So I, I concur with, with, with you, Brian, and I salute you, man, for what you have, what you've gone through, what you have accomplished. I think it's a, it's a, it's a great thing to see the resolve that you have and, and the support that you have. But we have to, as a nation, stand mm-hmm. up. And Justin, I, I say to you, man, keep doing what you're doing Absolutely. because somebody has to believe. If we don't, what are we going to do as a country? That's true. As a nation, I, I salute you. That that's just. That's overwhelming to me at this moment. That oh yeah, we we all uh, yeah, I mean, we 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 have to look at your situation and say that you that you're strong enough after this happened to you to come out and fight. I mean, we have to we commend you. We commend you on that, and uh, you thank know, you thank you for, for joining uh, in the fight. Um, we we have another another caller on that wants to make a comment. Luana, you want to make a comment for our guest? Yes, uh, Mr. Banks, why didn't, when you went back to the different football uh, teams, how come they didn't let you join up? Why were you dismissed? (laughs) Um, You know, I was, uh, even though I was found innocent, I I wasn't, (laughs) let me say this, the NFL is a business, and although I was innocent and I deserve an opportunity, um, it's still a business, and if they don't see me fit for a team, then they're just not going to hire me, and that goes to anybody. So I think really what it came down to was I came um, I came into these tryouts um, right after I was exonerated with the media pretty much hounding me and, and following me everywhere I went, and, and here I am trying to re- re-adapt back into the free world at the same time, take on this new um, persona as a hero and a motivator and inspirator, and being um, being sought after for interviews and so forth. Then at the same time, so dealing with all the personal things, and then here I am um, thinking that I'm in shape and thinking that I'm ready for the NFL. And really, after those first few tryouts, I realized how much more work I really needed to do before I could say that I was actually ready for the NFL so it took me an additional year um, after being exonerated of of training to just get my body physically right so I think just to answer that question I I was maybe moving a little too soon with the tryouts with everything that was going on on that one time one time yeah do you think you'll ever be able to enjoy your dream that you wanted yes I (laughs) I, I, I'm enjoying it now. You know, I always tell people, um, I, I, you know, I may not have played um, football in, in the way that they may have wanted me to play. I may not have made a, a team and played as long as people wanted me to play. And I may not be pursuing it the way that people want me to pursue the NFL. Um, for me, I wanted to recapture a dream that was taken away from me. That was to play football. I told myself, I will run out onto an NFL field and I will be a part of an NFL team. I never mm-hmm. said how long, if I'd win a Super Bowl, if I'd be a starting player. The objective was to recapture what was taken away. And I did that. I played four games with the Atlanta Falcons. And mm-hmm. not only that, I now have a position with the NFL in the front office in New York. Um, yeah. So I, I really think that um, for me, and I said this from day one, if it all ended, you know, with one game 
then I can rest assured tell my mom that I made it and, and I did yeah. it. I'm free. So I've I've already won. Yeah, it just, it just it just bothers me that um uh this girl took away your dream and mm-hmm. destroyed what you desired to do with a lie. That gets me well, in a way I can't even describe. Now you you don't yeah. have to be mad at her, I am. Mm-hmm. That you could what? do this to a person. <laughs> that just gets me in a way cuz if, if something doesn't happen that you anybody anywhere can come off the street and say this person did this or that or this and you believe it and they believe any lie you know and this is not just this is not just you this is this every time you look up you're hearing about somebody they lied on them they oh they found out they came forward and said it wasn't true this is getting old if that's the case, anybody in the world, anywhere around you, can come up and decide, look at you, I don't like you, I'm going to go and tell, allow you and get your life snatched from under your feet. That's just over the top. Something, there needs to be a law in place. If you don't have concrete evidence what you're bringing, we are not going to, uh, to, abolish, to, to, to indict or, or get this person uh, just off of what somebody said. People have been lying for years. And they're just going to believe the lie? Because people rather believe a lie than the truth anyway, any day. That's yeah. horrible. And then that's helping their case. Okay, you say he did it? Okay, that'll help me give me some more uh, people thrown in jail. I'll go ahead and do it. And God help you if you're black. Yeah, they had to do it. Their skin is dark. This is just over the top. There has got to be a law against these liars and these women coming out. Some of these women done done some of everything, and all of a sudden he raped me. We don't hardly have ladies anymore. And then they believe whatever these women say. No, find out what are you, what is this about? Is this for real? And I'm not saying that a woman that's loose should just be attacked and raped either. But at the same time, find out the details before you just believe somebody off the street that said, well, we were kissing and he did such and such a thing. No, well, you were there. If I don't, if I want to carry myself like a lady, then I should carry myself like a lady. And nobody, I know, then it wouldn't, nothing would have happened to me. That just doesn't even make sense. But then you go make up a lie on a good, decent guy and say he that he uh he raped me or he did this or he did that or they lie about all kinds of stuff on people. It's just wrong. And so we got to get a law, the law against these liars. It, that could happen to anybody. That don't even make sense. Thank you for listening, and I, and I applaud you, and, and, and I pray that God gives you everything you desire, because this is just over the top. Thank you for your comment, Juana. So, Brian, uh, and again, congratulations on, on the post uh, with the NFL in New York. Ethel, did you have a quick comment? Oh, I just wanted to say to Brian, don't forget, while you're on Capitol Hill, mention a just cause in the IRP6. <laughs> hey, I heard that. Shout out to the IRP six man. Let's All get right. those guys home. That's, That's right. right. That's right. So Brian, if, if uh, obviously folks will be able to uh, follow you with your activities uh, associated with the NFL, uh, and then as far as uh, any other activities with uh, the California Innocence Project, uh, uh, as far as, Justin, how can folks get in contact with the uh, California Innocence Project and and find out more about the work that you're doing? Yeah, they can go yeah. on CaliforniaInnocenceProject.org. 
Um, they can also look at our Facebook page. And, yeah, get, get involved. You know, there's 12 guys we're trying to get out in prison um, called the California 12, men and women, trying to get clemency from the governor. And they could go on our, our website for that, too. It's called innocencemarch.com. Last summer, a few lawyers in my office walked 700 miles to the governor's office to give him these clemency petitions, and we're still waiting for him to act on them. So I would encourage you know, people to get involved. Um, these are our brothers and sisters that are being locked up for stuff they didn't do, and it's everyone's responsibility to care about it. Wow. That's right. Again, Justin, Justin Brooks, director of the California Innocence Project, Brian Banks, uh, exoneree from California, uh, now with uh, the NFL. Very inspiring story. Yeah. Uh, we, we made it through without the, without the tissue box, but uh, barely. Uh, but your story is very inspiring, and, and we appreciate everything that, you're, that both of you are doing. Yes, absolutely. And uh, we appreciate Thank you, you taking the time out to join us this evening, and, uh, and appreciate everything that you guys are doing. Any Thank last guys. words from you guys? Just want to say of thanks. Uh, uh, Brian, stay up. Keep your head up. Uh, you know, we appreciate um, the fact that you're helping out who you can. I'm real glad to, to know that, uh, you know, you're an inspiration for the young men and women there in L.A., who may not see a way out, who may have had a, a you know a hard life, but you're there to tell them, hey, you haven't hard, had it as hard as I may have, and uh, you still there's a way out. So we appreciate you uh, hanging out in the hood to do that. And congratulations Thank on you. your your manager's position in the front office. That's awesome. Thank you, hey, Brian. Thank you. And uh, I really Lamont. appreciate you guys. Yeah, Brian Lamont here, and uh, just want to say, I mean, I'm a big NFL person. Uh, Dallas Cowboys all the way, but uh, <laughs> uh, we, uh, we 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 appreciate uh, you, man. You've inspired me today, and uh, there's a bond between us that'll always be there because we've walked kind of like the same road. So uh, right, I appreciate right, you. Right. I appreciate with you. And Justin, you keep on pushing. Also, you're doing an right. awesome job. Yeah. Thank right. you so much. Thank you, everybody. I really appreciate you guys for having us. Thank you. All right. Thank you, guys. Have a good evening. We're going to take a real quick break, and then we're going to come and close out things for the evening. This is Just Cause Coast to Coast, where we bring you education, awareness, and information about judicial injustice. We'll be right back. Talk, news, politics, and The opinions and views expressed by guests and callers on A Just Cause Coast to Coast do not necessarily reflect those of A Just Cause or A Just Cause Coast to Coast. A just cause, coast to coast, where we bring you education, awareness, and information about judicial injustice. And that was, uh, time just flew by on that one. I think we blew through all of our breaks. And, uh, but that was, that was a very inspirational very story, and we appreciate yeah. Brian and Justin joining us. So we uh, want to also just revisit the situation with the IRP6. want to remind our listeners that there's still work to be done there. And uh, so we need you to uh, be- become advocates and, uh, and, and reach out, help us out to bring more awareness to this case, especially in light of the recent uh, appellate decision. And so we are still trying to bring awareness to the wrongdoing that has been done in this case. And uh, the IRP6, we ask that you keep them in your prayers. That's Gary Walker, David Banks, 
Dave Zerpolo, Kendrick Barnes, Clinton Stewart, and Demetrius Harper. We ask that you go out on change.org, sign the petition for the over 200 pages of transcript that was denied to these gentlemen that would have helped to prove their innocence. And we're still going to keep pushing that. Uh, go out to uh, www.a-justcause.com. Go to our media page. And you can check out our uh, latest press release where we talk about, even in the appellate decision, the appellate court cut and pasted part of, the, part of their decision. And so you can read all about that. That's just, it, it just adds on. It just mounds up more on top of each other uh, to just show the injustice in this case. Absolutely. And if you want to find out more information about the IRP6 case, go to freetheirp6.org. Freetheirp6.org. We can always use your assistance as far as donations are concerned. As I indicated at the top of the program, we're working on our 501c3, but uh, any donation that you give will not, uh, it'll be used. It'll be put to good use, let me put it that way, because we do have a fight that's going on and, and we are working with our congressmen and, and uh, representatives there in Washington, D.C., uh, to try and bring about some change uh, in our judicial process. Uh, if you'd like to uh, listen to more of A Just Cause Coast to Coast, you can tune in every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Eastern Time to Progressive Radio Network. You can get there by going to prn.fm and uh, to listen to archives of this program as well as other programs uh, of A Just Cause Coast to Coast. You can go to ajcradio.com. For 24 by 7 programming, go to live365.com. We ask that you like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter. Ethel, we always put out that call for action uh, with the Attorney General's Office. Absolutely, we do. We're asking you, your friends, relatives, anybody that you know, have them call Attorney General Eric Holder's office at 202-514-2003 and 2005. Ask him to investigate what is going on with the over 200 pages of missing trial transcripts. Right, and all those jurors out there, part of the IRP6 case, we know you got questions. You hear us talk about Judge Arquell and her crookedness, Charlene Martinez, her crookedness, uh, Matthew Kirsch, all the way up to his boss, attorney, I mean, uh, U.S. Attorney John Walsh up there in Denver. You know things went bad. You got questions, we'll give you any answers that we have. You can reach us at 855-529-4252 or send us an email. We're at contact at a-justcalls.com. And a special welcome again to Lamont Banks joining the on-air team here at a Just Cause Coast to Coast. Uh, again, welcome Lamont. Welcome. And, uh, yeah. Thank you. And then also the work that you're doing uh, as far as volunteer work with a Just Cause Coast to Coast. Uh, you know, that's uh, immeasurable and we appreciate everything that you're doing. Cliff, thank you. Bim. We want to say thank you to everybody in the chat room, all of our guests, Brian Banks, Justin Brooks, we appreciate you guys for coming out Absolutely. and uh, spending Absolutely. the evening with us. Uh, a, a, a great young man doing, and um, you know his partner Justin helping out to get people exonerated. We're glad about that. I uh, want to say thank you, like I said, to everybody in the chat room, all your comments, to our callers. We appreciate all the dialogue you guys offer tonight. Also, want to say thank you to our crew, K and D Productions, Captain Kyle, and Dustin Jackson, helping out Ill Skillers Girl in the back room. Without them not hear what it is that we have to say also to the production support team they give us the content that we need to make sure you have valid and accurate information most of the time and to and we, we appreciate it oh all right then. uh to the truth <laughs> we, we know you out there truth we appreciate you too absolutely 
to Olivia and Miss Barbara and all of the AJC volunteers. Thank you so much for everything that you do. We appreciate you. Join us each Tuesday and Thursday right here on a Just Cause Coast to Coast where we bring you education, awareness, and information about judicial injustice. You can reach us or listen to us uh, from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time. Again, that's 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time. And then, uh, you know, like I said before, you can go out to AJC Radio for archives uh, of the program. Uh, Lamont, any closing words from you? Uh, Just glad to be here, be a part of the team, and uh, we're excited about uh, change coming about. Absolutely. Absolutely. And here's a quote that I hadn't thrown out there in a while. It comes from Bishop Desmond Tutu, and it says, If you are neutral in situations of injustice, you have chosen the side of the oppressor. And so, you know, whose side you on? Right. I'm going to leave that question with you. Whose side you on? That's right. All right, this is the Just Cause Education, Awareness, and Information about Judicial Injustice. On behalf of Cliff Stewart, Ethel Lopez, and Lamont Banks, I'm Sam Thurman. Good night, America. Good night. Good night, y'all.